0: I'm Moya Andrews, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Gary Dunham. He is the director of IU Press and Digital Publishing. Gary, thank you for being here today.
1: Oh, it's wonderful to be here.
0: We're really anxious to learn a lot about your past as well as the present, and I believe you grew up in Western Maine. Indeed, I did,
1: and it's been a long road. And if you think about where my story starts, or as we would say in Maine, starts, because you get to lose the R when, when you're talking with the Maine accent, it started in Western Maine, um, in a sense, 16,000 years ago, because that was when the last Ice Age was moving back from the ocean. And as it moved back, it scoured the valleys of western Maine and dropped lots of rocks and left them behind. And in one valley in western Maine, it left a small pond in the middle, and it left stones everywhere. Stones, some as large as a house, some very small, but everywhere. That valley has been home to my family I'm, uh, since 1850. I have seen the same horizons as my father, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather.
0: That is amazing. Not many people can claim that kind of a history.
1: Well, it really does have to do with roots. And there is a wonderful strength, I think, that comes out of having a heritage where you're actually associating with where your ancestors walked. Of course, the flip side of that is that for those of us who are looking beyond the hill, you know, sometimes it can seem a little small. I can and, understand that. And and I love both. And what's interesting is that I was raised surrounded by stones. As I said, stones everywhere. And my ancestors decided that they wanted to create walls. You know, and you, when you hear of New England, you think of stone walls. Um, you you know, we see the photographs of them. Well they served a very um, important um, function back in the nineteenth century because they had to clear the fields in order to raise crops and, mm. and, and, and have you know and farm animals and so on, but it also helped define the relations with with the rest of them. you know we talk about walls we are able to associate um, well my ancestors used the walls to define the space between the field and the forest mm-hmm. uh, when they would reach it as they, as they were pushing back the forests. At a certain point, they would create walls, um, stone walls that would, in a sense, be a a symbol of that line between civilization and the wilderness. Mm. But they also Mm. define relations with each other as well. So the largest walls were always those that were on the edge of one's farm. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. And it is
0: fascinating. It, it, is,
1: it is fascinating because it's not just about functionality. It's also about being an artist as well. And some of those walls are just absolutely beautiful, and they're still there. And so the walls that I see in my memory are the ones that were built over 100 years ago, and they have framed in a variety of ways how I, how I see myself. And um, I always think about the next steps in my life is as of moving beyond a wall. Is
0: that interesting? What a visual image you have.
1: Well, my my first experience as an archaeologist, and I have a PhD in archaeology from UVA, was because I was I was always walking the walls as a kid, and I would look behind them, and I would see trash trash heaps, you know, cans and bottles that were left behind by the families that had been there before my ancestors, and so rather than just look at them. I would excavate them. I wouldn't remove anything. I would actually clear the earth around it and draw it mm. because I wanted to understand mm. the story of what was going on, to tell the story. And so you can see there's an easy easy transition between telling the story as an archaeologist to being an editor like oh, I am yes. now. It's very, It's very much the same of, of being able to uh, allow the past to speak again.
0: Right. But the ideas are not visu- visual Exactly the way the the stones and the and the objects are right
1: exactly, but it is important for a publisher. For example, we bridge the author, the author and the reader. An archaeologist does the same because they have to they have to not only find the evidence but they have to tell the story of that evidence. Mm. And so it was easy after graduate school um, for me to be able to segue right into um, being able to be a publisher, just because. I've always been excavating and looking and putting things together and wanting to tell a good story.
0: Well, that is fascinating. It makes perfect sense, then. That... Yeah,
1: it does. It does.
0: But tell me about how you got from okay. that very small town. I <laughs> guess it was a very small town. It was a
1: small town. Um, it's not on a map. It's called Row Hill, and you won't find it on a map, so folks out there, don't bother to look because it's not there. It was a town when I was raised in the 70s and in the 60s. It was We had 17 people in there. Most of them, of course, were related to my family. And as I said, my family's been there since the mid-1800s. Um, it's known, along with the, the village next to it, as being the home of the last phone system in the U.S. that was when they returned by hand.
0: Yes, I remember those kinds of phones.
1: Yep, you see them on the Waltons. Mm. We were the last phone system in the United States. I didn't know how to use any other type of phone until I was a junior in high school and I had to call home from, from my high school.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating.
1: Most of the family worked in mills, wood mills. My father filed saw blades, filed saw blades in the local wood mill for forty-eight years before he retired. He also worked in the forest, as well, cutting think, wood. Exactly, and so I helped him starting at the age of seven.
0: So you were used to outdoor
1: work. I was, but you, but you probably can see that I spent most of my life in, in, indoors. And there's a reason for that, just because that wasn't the, the, the way of life for me. I was the boy on the farm who would always have a book in his hands when, when we went into the hay fields. It drove my father crazy. Oh, I bet it did. Oh, absolutely, because you know I would work when I had to because I knew exactly what I had to do. But I would always store behind a stone wall a paperback novel. It was usually, usually something science fiction-y. You know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan of the Apes, and so on. And I would always be dreaming about what it was like to be elsewhere. Now, how do you explain that? Because most of my family has stayed behind, but I, I've left. And I think it has to do with just being, um, to, to me, it just has to be that the way that you're made um, from the start. I was, wired, I was wired in a certain way. And I always knew because I was wired in a certain way that I would be leaving.
0: That is interesting. Now, what about your schooling? You uh-huh. went to a very small school, I'm sure, yep. in well, that area. Well,
1: actually, it's interesting. Was that during the late '60s, we did a transition where we were. in. Um, my, I originally went to a one-room schoolhouse very, very early, but we moved into a, a regional high school. So, and it was brand new. Mm. It was built the mm. same same time as a lot of the buildings here on campus here at, at IU. So, well, it, eventually, I was able. I went to a graduate school at UVA and majored in archaeology, and it, there was sort of that love of, of finding the past, which yes, I, I love I very, very much. Um, and I'd always known inside that I wanted to, to get a Ph.D. and to be the first one in my family to do that. Why? It's because I just wanted to prove to myself that, you know, I could be on a different path.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you were the only child in the family that went to college?
1: Yes, I was. It's interesting because I think a lot of people who come from small towns and talk about going on to school realize that it's a road that you want to walk. Because, but it can be a lonely road because more and more you realize you have less to talk about with your family that you've left behind. Mm. What you've got to talk mm-hmm. about is the land. You know, the stone walls, the mountains, you know, the, the lakes and so on, that, that will always be there as a, as a point of a commonality between you and your family. But when it comes to shared experiences, once you've looked over that horizon beyond where my ancestors were looking, the world's become extremely different. Mm. And so I, I go back to Maine. I, I love it. I think it's a great place. Um, but it's not me anymore. There's, you know, there's Maine in me. I mean, I can do the main accent. I can say, you know, like any good person from down east, but it isn't part of that path anymore. So I was at um, UVA. I was an archaeologist there. I graduated, um, got my Ph.D. in the 90s, and it was a tough time to find a job in archaeology. So Nebraska Press, University of Nebraska Press um, called upon me. They hired me to be the first, the first ever acquisition editor in American Indian studies in the United States.
0: Oh, how interesting! Yeah, what a my, wonderful opportunity.
1: It was great. Um, I was nervous about it because I had, I had had experience as an intern in in doing um, editing in graduate school. But I hadn't done a full-scale job as a publisher, and I, and I thought, you know, I need a job. I'm going to go to Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. I, I didn't know where Nebraska was on no, the map. No,
0: was a big hop
1: from the East Coast to Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a big hop. Yeah, Um, And I've told the story before that when I drove out there, I had no money, so I had to keep driving all night in the U-Haul. And I I drove all night. I I arrived in Lincoln at 4 in the morning. My first day at Nebraska Press started at 8 in the morning.
0: Oh, you made it just in time.
1: and 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 so I'm frantic. I can't get into the house that I was going to lease because I'd arrived in the middle of the night. So I had to change my clothes in the back of the U-Haul. Oh. And, I, so, and I walked to the press, and I walked in. They didn't know who I was. They thought I was starting the week later. So there was no furniture in my office. Oh, so
0: you were there a week early.
1: That's what they thought. And so my first day, as I've, I've told the story before, is that I was I went into my office, what was would be my office, and I was surrounded by manuscripts that were marked all around saying, you know, look at this, look at this, look at this. And so I just sat down and started reading. And
0: did you sit on the floor I sat on or did the they floor, give you a chair?
1: I sat on the floor for the first few hours. No one knew what to do with me because my supervisor was on, was away. He was on a trip. And so they just kind of left me alone, and I just started reading and fell in love with what I do. It, and it's, even
0: after driving all night?
1: I was I was really tired, and I was kind of a little bit discouraged because I felt like, you know, this isn't a great start when no one even knows that you're supposed to be there. But um, what I really... Liked about it was the fact that, as I've said, as I've realized years afterwards, I didn't need furniture. I had everything I needed in that office, and that were all these ideas from all these authors, and I was in the place to be able to bring them out and share them with the world. That's at the heart of all things. When you get beyond the uh, the wonderful advances in terms of of uh, technology, when you get beyond. Um, The organization of the press itself, ultimately, it comes down to being a relationship between a manuscript and an editor, between the author's ideas, the story and the research they want to share with the world and what we can do to make that happen. That
0: sounds like a wonderful, wonderful thing to work on.
1: You know, it's interesting over the last number of years— that lots of people have have been concerned about the fate of scholarly publishing. And I understand why. The financials aren't always great. The models we're looking at in terms of how we disseminate content and how how we're going to recuperate our costs, there are lots of them out there. Um, Some of them seem to work and some of them do not. Lots of people worry about the value. But the people who have never swerved in their devotion are the editors, the people who work inside of the scholarly publishing houses themselves they have never swerved in their love for what they do and it is amazing because they know that they're in a privileged position to share that with the world like nobody else ever ever can can do
0: so it's a unique opportunity it's a unique opportunity but the wonderful thing is that they realize it and savor it Savor the audience It is absolutely
1: true. And I would say to you, and I've, I worked at Nebraska Press. I was director at SUNY Press. And I worked at ASHA, the American speech Language Hearing Association, and here. I would say to you that the ma- majority of the disagreements I ever hear in the workplace about how we handle a book is because people love what they do. And it's about them disagreeing about what's best for the book. And
0: mm-hmm. that's again and again.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's and I have to say this, is that I get inspired... <laughs> by my staff. I get inspired by them. Um, And Indiana is just the same as everywhere else in in our regards is that it's hardening to be at a place where people come to work every day, put their heads down, and at the end of the day, they're making happen books and journals that are going to outlive us all. The stories, the research is going to be well beyond our lives, and we're putting our value added onto it. It is a wonderful job to have.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the press because, as you know, Indiana University loves its press. We have always had a great fondness for Indiana University Press. And it makes me very pleased to hear you talk in this manner about how special it is to work within that community. Yep.
1: They, They really do love it. They've always loved it. From the inside, they've always, always, always loved it and what i'm really happy about and one of the main reasons i wanted to come here was because the university now recognizes that publishing is a vital reason I think we don't. this
0: university recognizes the importance and the, relevance
1: because we have vision at the top that says that iu that the job of a university the responsibility of a university is not just to support research, but to disseminate it.
0: Yes, that Put, dissemination that is the
1: That's the key piece. And why don't we take advantage of our press on campus and bring it in? And so we have reformed the press as the Office of Scholarly Publishing on campus, which is a unique um, entity which spans the campus. So the press is still there, and it's got this wonderful brand, and I'm really excited uh, over the next hour to talk about the things that we, we are going to be doing um, in the future, but what we're doing now, um, but we also have the Office of Scholarly Publishing, which brings together different types of content that's that's being um, published on campus. And we maximize how we can coordinate them, mm.
0: coordination faster, and dissemination. It's, it's,
1: it's exactly it, and, and and that's that's the visionary leap forward, and that's the reason why that i I made the journey here from the American Speech Language Hearing Association is because we're now <laughs> recognizing this a wider, more sweeping investment by the university to make sure that research and stories get into the right hands. We're going to own it, and IU owns it, and it's awesome.
0: And there are wonderful stories to be told. Oh, Lord, yes. And I know that you you specialized in stories related to American Indians when yep. you were in Nebraska. That's right, yeah. And then from there you went to SUNY. What was special about the SUNY Press? What I
1: liked about SUNY Press and why I wanted to be the, the, the director there was because it was a different way to um, define and carry out scholarly publishing because in Nebraska it was one university. Yeah, it was the University of Nebraska Press, and it was at Lincoln. But with SUNY, the press was responsible for the entire um, um, system, SUNY system. How That's many campuses? 64 campuses.
0: 64 campuses.
1: I was on the road all the time trying to coordinate what was going on, on the at, at, at those universities. It's, it was it was fascinating. And and that uh, SUNY Press isn't really part of a single campus. It's part of the uh, government of New York as a whole.
0: Oh. So that was
1: a different experience.
0: Yes, very different. Very, di- mm. very,
1: very, very different experience experience. I really enjoyed working on American Indian books. And I would say that probably most people would argue that I published more books buying about American Indians than anybody else. And I, there's a funny story about that. A number of years ago, my father flew out to Lincoln, Nebraska. and He wanted to go to the, the Black Hills. He wanted to tour the Black Hills. So we're at, I think it was yeah, Mount Rushmore. And we were in the bookstore. And they have, they, they have a section for American Indian books. And there were two long shelves. Nearly all of them were ones that I had acquired.
0: Oh, that's an achievement. It,
1: it was, you know, it, it's humbling in many ways because, you know, it's not me. That's not my voice. Those are, the, those are other people's stories. I could help them, you know, share them with the world. But my father looked at it. He stares at it. And I, I explained to him I had acquired his books. And he said, I don't understand. I thought you worked for a newspaper. <laughs> he thought I was a newspaper reporter all these years. All those he years he had it wrong. He had it wrong, even though I explained to him what, what an editor does as an acquiring editor. And so he was like, I, I don't understand. So I explained it to him, and he was like, oh, okay. And he walks away
0: <laughs> because you know, he was
1: he was just sort of that, that, that type of guy. But, well,
0: our families <laughs> often don't know what we really do. It's true, isn't it?
1: And having, having come from such a different background and having followed such a different path, it's really important to try to keep them in the loop over the years, and I think that at various points in my life I've done that well, and other times I have not done that well. And I think now I'm, I'm in a happy place with that. Oh and well, so that's I, good. Well, I,
0: maybe this is a place where we could have your first music selection. Okay. Uh, could you tell us what you have brought to play for us? Well, oh, it's.
1: I, I believe it's all from the uh, the '60s, and so um "Moody Blues" uh, from the album "Threshold of a Dream." Are you sitting? comfortably. One of my favorite songs. I love the Moody Blues. Uh, when I was in college, and yes, it wasn't in the 60s. I'm not, I'm not quite that old yet, um, but it was, they, they were my, my favorite band, and I have a lot of fond memories of uh, listening to them and just thinking about what my next steps were going to be.
0: Mm I wanted to talk a little bit about how publishing Mm -hmm. is changing or Mm -hmm. has changed and will change more, perhaps. Sure. It seems to be in a state of flux in many ways. Is that correct or not?
1: It it depends on how you look at it. You know, I've been in publishing since 1995, and those 20 years have really been a watershed time in American history when it comes to how... We, we, we speak to each other, how we share information, and how we retrieve information. Um, I can remember it from a technological point of view, of still doing everything in terms of uh, mail and letters, and so on, mm. when I started at Nebraska Press in 1995. We did know about email, but not a lot of universities were using it. And you really couldn't research the contact people at the university because universities at the time were hiding the emails of, mm. the, of the faculty members. Mm. They're very nervous about it. And so we would resort mostly to speaking on the phone or just, we, just, we would just write a letter and send it in the mail. And so um, publishing was much longer term when it comes to actually moving projects forward. You'd have this rhythm of several years where you would stop, you'd go to a conference, you would meet somebody who was working on a project, you'd talk about it a little bit, they'd be working on it, you'd probably give them a call afterwards and then they would send you the proposal or the manuscript Mm -hmm. by mail.
0: I remember that. There's no
1: email attachments here, no. And so it would arrive and then we would have to, in our own way, contact... A, a, a reviewer or a couple of reviewers. Again, there's a longer rhythm of response. And then you would have the manuscript reviewed. And Of course, you'd send the manuscript out by mail again to the reviewers. And then they would send it back by mail mm-hmm. because we wanted to make sure that it was destroyed because it was an original work. That takes a lot of time. Um, and then eventually um, you would then Take the board, t- take the board, take the book to the to your faculty board, get it approved, and then you'll get in touch with the author again slowly. Nowadays, it's so much faster because e- email and, and, and box and so on, ways to export files, makes it much faster. I think we have sped up the book process even before we actually receive a manuscript. The, you know, the fact that we can speak with authors in such a m- much more an effective way and with reviewers means that um, publishing It's much faster paced than it used to be, even on the end of the press itself. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. It also means that you can have much more of an intimate and immediate conversation and contact with your authors because you're not waiting for the conference to actually be able to see what they look like. You can Skype them, for, for goodness sakes now, mm-hmm. or to be able to be able to uh, have a sense of what their personal lives are like. Um, some authors are my Facebook friends, and that's fine with me. I don't mind at all uh, because I share the kind of intimate experience of their dreams mm-hmm. and, and their voice, and I want to make, make that happen. And I think that 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 you know the uh, the technological revolution has over the last 20 years, really has made much more effective and intimate the relation between the editor at the press and the author themselves. Mm. That's just one part of it. Much more
0: personal.
1: It's much more personal. It's it's faster and immediate as well. I mean, I would say that it's not that it's a sweatshop now where we're just pouring and running content through, but we're certainly a lot more responsive in a positive way. Mm. If there are things going on out there, like there's a vital event that's going on that I think that our readers need to, to hear about, I can email, I can, I, can, I can call, I can Skype an author, and, and we can get information pretty fast from them to build a book. Mm. So mm. I think the press becomes from a from kind of a current events social um, point of view, much more responsive and responsible now. And that's mm. just one aspect of the vast things that have changed. Think about now. Nowadays, with content, we can tell stories in ways that we couldn't before, much more interesting ways. Think about this. Students don't read a textbook. They experience it online. Mm -hmm. What a huge Mm -hmm. difference when it comes to planning how you're going to create that content in a structured form as a publisher. You're looking at multimedia. You look at the interactive elements and you build books accordingly. As I've said, one of my favorite lines in the press is that because of the tools available to us, we are now engineers of content.
0: That's an interesting way of putting it.
1: It is. It is, and, and I think that this is probably the first time that that concept has been expressed for how a university press works. We're engineers because we uh, put to to we add our value added, and it isn't just skimming the surface and doing a copy edit. It's how do we most effectively present this so that the readers are going to experience it in the appropriate manner.
0: So it's multidimensional. It is
1: multi-dimensional and it means that the press from a technological literacy point of view, has got to own it. And that's one of the challenges of scholarly publishers over the last 20 years is that the revolution in, uh, in technology, has been so rapid that we've lost contact with it. We've lost contact with um, how these tools can help us better disseminate our content to our readers. And so, By
0: we, you mean people um, in press? Publishers, publishers, publishers. Yes,
1: and what often happens is that we relegate that technological literacy to those outside the press. We hire a vendor to come in and do this for us, rather than us owning it and understanding these tools will allow you as an author to tell your story or share your research much more effectively. Mm-hmm. And So that's one of the uh, mandates that we're doing at the new IU Press, is that we're requiring a level of technological literacy um, for, for the press as a whole. They don't have to understand all of the technological aspects of these tools that are out there, but they darn well better understand how they can allow p- authors to tell their stories better.
0: Hmm. So they need to know about the tools. They, they don't need to be experts in the use of every tool. That's
1: exactly right. Like For example, I am not going to be able to take a manuscript, manuscript and mark it up in an XML language. But I know what XML can do mm-hmm. in order to be able to make my content as malleable and powerful as possible. And that's the level of understanding that I need to know. So here, here's the thing that challenges we're all facing. We have a tsunami of change and content flowing past us. How do you filter it? How, how do you keep up with it? And so what we've done at IU Press is that we formed a, a technological literacy committee that is actually working with my former press at ASHA because we all share mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a common set of, 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 of interests. And, and we've assigned people to uh, different uh, magazines and blogs and so on online to, uh, to, to look at and to monitor what's going on and to report back so it's an it's an interesting way we're not we're not going to be able to know and own everything, but we do have a responsibility as a publisher to be able to be aware of how we can disseminate the most effectively for our university
0: so where do you find these people to hire <laughs> to have this kind of wide array yeah. of tools or knowledge of tools right. where well, do you find these people
1: well first of all um it's pretty easy to hire people at IU because of the fact that Bloomington is such a wonderful place to live, and and the university you know is, is first rate. So it makes it easy. But when it comes to the pool of knowledge, where that's coming from, it's coming from the tech. It's coming mostly from inf- information services, information services, and I'm seeing a lot of young professionals in scholarly publishing are being trained in information services as well as in just the normal ways of how you copy edit and so on. So you're seeing a lot of wider exposure to what's going on in technology at, at the level of education.
0: Mm. And so Undergraduate education or graduate education? Um,
1: graduate education is what I'm seeing. So the younger scholars that I'm speaking to are ones that can jump back and forth between talking about XML to be talking about how to do a copy edit, or how to acquire a book. It's an interesting and brand new um, set of skills mm. that, that I'm seeing. But I'm not seeing as much coming from um, the senior people in the field. They're still kind of assigning all that, that knowledge to one person on their staff rather than owning it themselves. And so well, w- that's
0: inevitable, or that would happen, <laughs> one would think.
1: Yep, it, w- it would happen,
0: and so that's, that's what
1: I'm looking at. Um, I, really, I really like a lot of the graduates in information science. I would like to see more formal training in publishing on a college level um, that would incorporate more of of that kind of um, technological background.
0: It's sort of a holistic It's, it's, more, it's more of a holistic background.
1: way of looking at it. A lot of the, the best qualified people that I've seen are those that may, maybe didn't receive all the formal training in it, but they went and through their work experience, they learned it. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking for a combination of coming from the right place when it comes to your background in terms of education, but also in terms of your current work. And so looking at that new uh, group of the publishers that are moving up through the ranks, it's exciting to see because mm. they really are what, what the next steps are going to be.
0: Well, it's interesting because it's a, a combination of, of technological skills, yeah. but also you need those old-fashioned skills that publishers needed, oh, which was the personalities
1: Absolutely. to connect yep. and, and
0: to be able to establish a long-term relationship and, with authors.
1: Yep, and it's interesting that you say that because the hardest thing to train an acquisition editor on, is how to be able to read authors, to be able to know, is this person going to be able to get this manuscript on time? Mm -hmm. Um, And also to be able to have a personality that is going to be supportive, but also firm when it comes to, you know, deadlines and schedules and so on. And also to have somebody who has a training to be able to dive into a 300-page manuscript, know what it is and, and, and why it's important in 40 minutes. That's well, we that do.
0: requires a certain amount of cognitive uh, <laughs> ability, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, that's, well, it, it does. And I would say that when I started at Nebraska Press, I read as a scholar because I had just come out of you know, graduate school. And so I would take a manuscript and I would read it and, and think about it. And I would go through it because I wasn't looking at it from the eyes of the publisher or the editor. I was looking at it through the eyes of the field of scholarship. Mm. There's a huge difference. And when you're looking at a manuscript from the eyes, Through the eyes of of a publisher, you're looking for how is this information organized? What's the audience? Is this prose appropriate for the audience? Um, Can we make this into a book? What's our cost going to be? Does this resonate with the lists that the press have have, have already established so that we can market it the most effectively? All those things go through your head. But the most important thing is what is it and why does it matter?
0: And why does it matter? Right.
1: And Mm -hmm. I've trained lots of acquisition editors over these 20 years. And the first stage of training always is I set them in a room, I hand them a manuscript, and I say, I'll be back in 40 minutes. Tell me what it is, why it matters, and why should we or shouldn't we do this book? And I walk out. And it's scary the first few times. Mm, but, it is. But, but eventually, the, the acquisition editors know because they're on the front lines, because they're the ones bringing in the new content, because they're the ones that are charting the next steps for the press as a whole. They know that they have a responsibility to be able to translate that manuscript into something that their colleagues can understand. Mm-hmm. So I've always made it a point that the best trained editors are those that, if anybody from the press walks in your office and points to a manuscript and says, "What, what is it? and Why are we doing it?" You should be able to explain it to them right away. You gotta own it. Mm-hmm. You have to. own it. It's mm-hmm. so very much important, and that's not not always the case in the industry because it's such an an, an emphasis on just getting books because mm-hmm. we need the mon we need the money we need the content that often acquisition editors don't have time to read a manuscript or to engage with it. They just get it, and they send it out to reviewers as soon as possible.
0: And they rely on the reviewers to tell them whether it's any good. Now, what about accountability? I would imagine accountability is really important in your field. Absolutely. I mean— Nowadays, one has the sense that if the book doesn't sell, mm-hmm. that therefore the acquisitions editor might be in hot water. Is that actually the case, or are there other measures no. of accountability? No,
1: no, it's it's a little more complicated than that, which I'm happy about because you shouldn't point fingers at any one person. Um, publishing is an interconnected process, like no other, and so the, the 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 success of a book depends upon a lot of interrelated factors. One, of course, is the strength of the work itself, which is really the responsibility of the acquisition editor. Is this topical? Is this needed? But there's also the value added that's put on by the copy editor and the, and the designer as well. You want the book to look right for the type of book. It needs to be for the type of content. But I think most importantly, it's the marketing as well. It's a combination. And so you've got to have them all working together as a seamless team on these projects in order for a book to fly. Understand this: the key to a successful press, it absolutely is not a single book. It's the list as a whole, and un- informing that list is a, strate- is a strategic plan. You write a strategic plan where you identify the areas that the press wants to publish in, and then every book that comes in already has a plan behind it, and a story behind it, and a mm-hmm. context behind it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, um, it's, it, you know the fact is is that IU Press is probably the world's leading publisher in African Studies. It's, we've got a magnificent list and an outstanding acquisition editor that's in charge of that list. We have written a strategic plan for that area. We have written a strategic plan from the marketing point of view, so that whenever a book comes in, we already know the, the avenues, the venues in order to advertise that book. We know who wants it, who, who wants to buy it. And that's because we have coordinated acquisitions and the, and the marketing efforts from the start. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and that's a different way of looking at how mm-hmm. we publish a book because the old-fashioned model is that it's the, it's the, um, it's the downstream model. You start with the acquisitions. They find the books. It flows down to the, the copy editor, eventually makes it to the, uh, the marketing department. That's not how a publisher should be working the most effectively. You work most effectively by assigning teams from each department to each book as it comes in. Mm-hmm. So all that value, all the investment and the value added and the sharing of, of strategies of how to do the book most effectively happened at the beginning of the process mm-hmm. and, and, not just, and not just happenstance throughout the publishing process.
0: So the team is involved from the very moment the that's, book is acquired. That's
1: how it worked in the past, and that's how we're restructuring IU Press at, at this point. We've already done some experiments that have worked very well.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Now, in terms of your accountability… Yep. You as the leader of this whole operation, it would take a number of years before anyone would be able to assess how well you have done your job.
1: And this is both the wonderful thing about the field, the business, because we're looking towards the future. We're building the future. And it's the frustrating thing about the business and for the university because the investment of the resources that you put in now, you're not going to see bear fruit for at least three years two to three three.
0: I would think it'd be more than that.
1: It, it all depends because um, I work the editors pretty fast. We build this pretty effectively. But in order to be able to build a world-class press, there has to be a strategic investment of resources, both in terms of um, being able to find the right types of books, but also to be able to market the books as well. And Once you've identified your areas, which we have at IU Press, normally, as I've seen it, and this is the fourth strategic plan I've written, the turnaround time for success to be able to evaluate your success is in about three years. And you have to ask yourself what success means. Does success mean being able to make money for the university? No. Success means being able to balance your budget as much as possible, to be able to get back the money. Uh, through sales that, b- that the university has invested in you, and that's the goal, of course, that we're looking for. And of course, success is measured by serving as a vital publishing resource on campus. If you know, in any department, if they need to have um, advice about a book contract, or if they've got a a journal or book program themselves, we can help them. We can help them in terms in terms of the marketing of the book, the copying of the book, the design of the book, and that's uh, I'll be I'll be talking about that in a while, but that's one of the many things we're doing. Is that we're we're spreading out over the campus, and we are working with faculty and departments in order to be able to get their content out there to get their research and stories shared.
0: Well, that's very interesting and very inspiring. Maybe this is a good time for us to listen to your next music mm. selection. Can you tell us what it is?
1: Well, I guess what, what do we do across the universe? By the Beatles. One of my favorite. The Beatles. You're a fan of the Beatles? The first time I heard the Beatles was in Western Maine, 1969. My dad had a radio on in the cow barn, and it was late afternoon. And a song came on, and he was, because I, I've been fooling around with the radio because that's me, I'm rest, restless. And a song came on, and he was like, what's that hippie music? Turn it off, up." <laughs> and it was Hey Jude. It was Hey Jude by the Beatles. That was the first time I ever heard them. And I fell in love with the Beatles. They were a very important part of the 1970s to me after they had you know, disbanded. Uh, I, I discovered them at that point. And I've always loved Across the Universe. It's a very peaceful song.
0: Well, Gary, you have made a big start already with all the things you've accomplished since you arrived, but tell us what your long-term goals are in terms of IU Press.
1: Well, um, the university and I completely agree that it benefits the university, it benefits Indiana, and it benefits all these fields of scholarship um, to have a press that's world-class. And so they've asked me to come in and to... um, to give it a fresh start, to reboot on a variety of levels. And so what's emerging now is a new press. That's not a university press. It's a university's press. And I say that because um, its interface with the university is through the Office of Scholarly Publishing. This press is invested in, in such a wonderful way. So I, I'd love to talk to you about a number of things that we're doing. One is, is that we're incorporating in, I should say, we're overhauling, the um, operations of the press. We want to publish books as effectively, as quickly, and as cleanly as possible. So we're speeding up the publishing process by bringing in uh, the best practices of publishing. And we've, been, we've already been doing it. We've already started overhauling the workflows of the department. We've been looking at technological tools that will allow us to have a, a work. Flow that is completely electronic rather than carrying pieces of paper around from office to office. That's going to speed us up. And that's the best practices that we saw at the American Speech Language Hearing Association. As a matter of fact, what we're doing is that we're incorporating the operational workflow of a, of a medical association into the heart of a university press. And let me talk, and that, mm. that's going to matter. It's never been done at a university press before. Um, when you're on the front lines, when it comes to Uh, medical association publishing. You need to get your content out there to the people at the point of care as quickly as possible. And so your workflows are set up that way. We're overhauling the journals workflow at IU Press in order to be able to do exactly that. We're working with the same vendors that I worked at 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 my last job at the medical association. And um, we're going to be incorporating that workflow into uh, edited volumes at the press. So we're going to be moving that workflow into a portion of the book program. If you think about it, an edited volume is just like a journal, okay? You've got chapters written by different people. So the workflow applies exactly the same. So what we're doing is that we're we're going to be shifting over the next year the workflow of all of our edited volumes to a journal's workflow, which means that it's going to be disseminated much faster and that once we have the, the appropriate online platform, we're... People who buy an edited volume ahead of time are going to be able to see those chapters appear one at a time as they're finished online rather than waiting for the whole book to appear.
0: Oh, so that's, it's sequential. You it get is. it in. Build it. As it comes, it's built.
1: It's, it, think of it as a feed of content. Mm. And so one of the next steps in terms of monetizing that content is to have a, a, a subscription to that feed of content. So what we've got is kind of a hybrid of a book program and a journalist program where we can respond almost instantly to events. And that's and I, and that's very
0: well, impressive. It's, it's,
1: well, it's also it, – it, it says to me that the university press can be socially responsible and responsive to what is going on out there.
0: And they can have immediacy.
1: We can have immediacy. And we've
0: never had immediacy right. in the past.
1: We can't. Now, you you could say that, well, we've already got that kind of avenue for responsiveness through – um. <laughs> through blogs and the social media. But that's not vetted. That's not vetted. That's not polished and value-added in the way that a press is. It doesn't have that kind of stamp of scholarship as well, you know, the kind of scholarly lens, which is important. So you can do a combination of taking advantage of the scholarly vetting process of a press with the technological tools to respond quickly. Mm -hmm. All that. So I have taken over the last five months a good hard look at our resources that we have at the press, the mission of the university and the press, where we want to go, what kind of press do we want to be in three years and five years, and then put the pieces into play. And that's that's when we ask the university um, to respond accordingly. We're doing so, so much exciting stuff now. It's so exciting. Um, when I arrived in um, last fall, I hadn't realized that Indiana is celebrating its 200th anniversary next year.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And so one of the first things that we did was that I appointed a team... To oversee the books that we were going to be doing, in order to showcase Indiana, and so I'm pleased to announce that as part of our new strategic plan, is that we will be uh, we will be showcasing Indiana more than ever in our list. We're going to be expanding the number of books that we do about Indiana and by Indiana authors, uh, because that's part of our responsibilities as a press, but also takes advantage of the fact that next year, everyone is going to be thinking about you know our state. And they're going to be wanting to talk about it. They want to, wanting to learn about it. They're going to be wanting to share stories about it. And of course, we're going to be in just the right place to do exactly that.
0: It's going to be an exciting time.
1: It is, and one of the exciting um, books that we're going to be doing is a book that we're going to have written by the people of Indiana themselves. What we're doing is, oh. a, yeah, this is this is a unique experiment that's coming from the uh, marketing department at at, at 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 the press, is that we're asking. Um, and this will be advertised. This will be uh, advertised online in about a month. So this is sort of a glimpse of what's to come. We want the people of Indiana to tell us what is funny, quirky, and original about the state. Tell us a story that could only take place in Indiana. And so the Are name. Are you going of,
0: to have roving reporters?
1: No. What we're doing, we're do, we're take advantage of, of um, the tools online, and we're we're posting on our website and Facebook. As well, and we're asking people. In the name of the book is called Only in Indiana, and there's a lot of funny stories about the state in a lovely way. You know, it's not making fun of the state. It's yeah. just sort of smiling and saying, "Yep, I understand that because I'm a Hoosier." And we've already, when we leaked word out through our interns about this. We've already received, I think, 15 to 20 stories already.
0: Oh, wonderful. P-
1: people like to talk about their states. People love Indiana. Hoosiers, they love their state. They're, they're proud of their state. And we want to hear about it. We want to hear what you, the things, that, the stories, um, the landscapes, Um, the histories that you feel like could have only taken place in this beautiful state.
0: So the things that are unique. It's
1: it's crowdsourced. This is a crowdsourced book. We're going to build it from the viewpoint of the people of Indiana, and it will be published um, early next spring.
0: Well, that sounds like a wonderful project. It's And one that Hoosiers will embrace.
1: Another book that we're doing that I think is going to be seen, on the national stage this fall, is um, we all know about the town of Santa Claus, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you know that the post office at Santa Claus, Indiana, has received um, letters addressed to Santa on envelopes since the 1930s?
0: I didn't know it was and, that long. And that
1: the National Post Office, the, the the United States Post Office, if they see envelopes that are addressed to Santa Claus, they send them on to Santa Claus in Indiana. Oh. The good people there, the good postal workers, have been saving these letters since the thirties. They are magnificent. No one has ever. Seen them, and, we, and no
0: one has recognized this wonderful contribution they it's they've made to the children.
1: It's fantastic, and so the book is organized by stories that kids and some adults. Some of them are extremely funny. God, it made me laugh. Um, but this book is organized by by each era, and so we have those handwritten letters, very formally done from kids in the 1930s, asking for list upon list upon list of stuff. And, and and then it goes into the 60s and so on and so forth um, We've already received where we talk to the marketing reps uh, that work for the press and they are ecstatic about this book and uh, they feel like it is going to get national exposure because it is a window onto a world that, we, we don't appreciate as much anymore. And it also is a testament to the Postal Service that they keep sending these letters without a cost onto Santa right. Claus, Indiana. And the
0: Postal Service needs some recognition. They certainly do. <laughs> this <laughs> is a good time for that. It's really now, nice. Now, the people at Santa Claus, mm-hmm. do they keep, have they kept all of these letters? They have
1: them in a separate... I, I believe it's a museum or it's a separate house, but they have kept them there. Uh, the marketing people from the press that went down to see them said there are letters everywhere. They've chosen... The greatest hits. There's plenty more, and so it's an insight into America has its evolved over the 20th century. It's an insight into how how much education to do the little ones receive and how well do they write. That's obviously yes, changed. Yes, the writing changed.
0: must have changed a great it's, it's deal. It's changed, and even
1: not even just the words, but the way one writes. Oh yes, you know, One's formally trained in how to and how how cursive. to write cursive. Cursive, yeah. Um, so the uh, and and what's nice is that we've taken. Uh, photographs of all them, so you can actually see the writing itself.
0: Oh, that's it's, lovely. It's intimate. The illustrations It's it's personal. a very important part. And
1: we're looking at this being one of the biggest books the press has done in years, just because we've gotten such
0: attention for it already. And this is so intrinsically a part of the Indiana University Press mission. It is. To it's, showcase the state. As I say, bring Indiana to the world and bring the world back home. Oh, I think that's wonderful. That's, I'm that's excited. Cool. I almost want to rush out and buy it right away. <laughs> well, you know,
1: and it was interesting that we, we, we actually experimented with a new way of publishing books in order to be able to get this book out in time for the holidays. Normally, a book is going to have to go through a formal uh, process of about, about a year at a press. Mm. So, because we've been streamlining our workflows, we're able to put it out in about eight months, and that's that's our first step towards being real fast. That is fast. So that's, we're really excited about it. And it, it just serves so much what we need to do as a press. But, of course, part of our new strategic plan as well is that we, we're reaffirming our, our existing strengths. You know, Jewish studies, m- music studies, film, a- a- African studies, all those. Um, a Middle East studies as well, all of those. Uh, we've got great plans to build those lists out even more. We're also going to be moving even more into the sciences and health.
0: Oh, that's an interesting. Well, we've got our new School of Public Health. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so um, I'm looking forward to having a lot of conversations with them as well. Um, and, of course, my own background at the American Speech-Language Hearing Association means that we're going to be moving into that field as well. I'm, I'm going to be working. Well, I'm
0: glad to hear that since uh, you that's would, my professional yeah, orientation. Exactly,
1: exactly. Well, and I, I, you know, I've got a special um, relationship with, with ASHA, um, I work for them for four years. So they trust me. They want to work with us as a partner on book on, on some book programs.
0: So that's good. So you that's get books from the national office.
1: Right. Well, and and you think about it, American the American Speech Language Hearing Association is made up of over one hundred and seventy three thousand, you know audiologists, speech language pathologists, and scientists. That's a great audience for, for a press. And I'm one of them. You are one of them indeed, <laughs> Indeed you are. Um, and so another initiative that we're working on is that, let's face it, our university is going to celebrate its 200th anniversary yes. in 2020. And that was one of the first things that I, I looked at as well, and I thought, okay, it's 2014 when I arrived. We've got to get going on, on some book projects mm-hmm. in order to be able to have those books ready by the end of 2019 so that for the for the 200th anniversary year, those books will be freely available. So we're working on now four different book projects that will showcase um, Indiana University's history, history, lives that the people worked here and the legacy as well. And so we're starting to build that out as well and bringing those books under contract. And we're putting them on tight schedules because I, I don't want to have to rush at the end. I want these books to look beautiful. I want people to appreciate them. I want them to be designed well. So I think the heart of that is going to be a pictorial, a pictorial history, a brand new pictorial history of the university.
0: That will be significant.
1: That will be really significant. Mm-hmm. And to do so, we've already assigned a designer to the book. This is this is unheard of. You don't do this. You're supposed to wait to the end of the process to do that. But we want the designer to work with the with the authors to be able to visually conceive of the best way to do this book, and so we're talking years ahead of time.
0: But and this is really collaborative.
1: It Has to be. There's no there's no other way to do a book right. Is to has to, and, and that means in terms of the press itself, the collaboration with the press. You know, like all um, publishing houses. You know, you often have disagreements between departments. And one of the best ways to break down those silos is to assign them to teams into books. And, and you get a real sense of what the value is of the resource of each of those individuals. Mm. So I'm really mm. excited about, you know, the fact that you know, the university is open is 200th uh, because there are a lot of great stories to tell.
0: Yes, it's a wonderful time for you to take over at the press. It's perfect. It would, because this, so many mm-hmm. things are opening up that we'll, you'll be able to capitalize. It.
1: I, th- I absolutely think so. And there's such a spirit of cooperation on campus as well. And it's well beyond me being the new person and it's the honeymoon period, you know, blah, 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 that. Um, the fact is is that there's a real yearning to be able to create content create books and journals that that, that, are, that are going to be important, that are going to matter, and as I've said, they're going to outlive us all. And that's that's across campus. I have been received so well by, by people at this university who are excited about the fact that we have a world-class press that's offering itself as a resource. What can we do for you? And that's the first question that I ask um, my colleagues on campus. What can we do for you? Because we are the university's press.
0: That is a wonderful place for us to end. Great. Because... It sounds so exciting what you've described to us, and it makes us all proud because it is the university's press. I've been speaking today with Gary Dunham. He's the new director of IU Press and Digital Publishing. Gary, thank you so much for being with us.
1: I'm really happy to be here. Thank you,
0: Moya. Thank you. And this is Moya Andrews for Profiles.
1: Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.